Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Deco Dawson, a Winnipeg filmmaker who established himself at the turn of the millennium as a cinematographer and editor on Guy Madden's Dracula, Pages from a Virgin's Diary, and The Heart of the World, and went on to make a run of inventive, alluring short films, among them Dumb Angel, Help I'm Alive, and Keep a Modest Head. Deco's first feature, Diaspora, follows a Ukrainian emigre named Eva, played by Yulia Guzva, as she arrives in Winnipeg to start a new life, only to find herself in a city where no one seems to speak the same language as anyone else. It's a really great idea. Only Ava's dialogue is subtitled, so we have to make our way just as she does. And it premieres this Saturday, October 8th, at 7.30pm in Montreal's Festival de Nouveau Cinema. And if you're in Montreal, you should go. Deco picked Mon Oncle, Jacques Tati's 1958 comedy about the gentle chaos that reigns when Tati's befuddled, old-fashioned Monsieur Hulot ventures from his ramshackle Paris neighborhood to stay with his upwardly mobile sister and her family in a modernized suburb. A sequel to Mr. Hulot's Holiday, the film raises the bar for technical virtuosity and social commentary at about the same rate, prefiguring the clockwork ballets of Tati's playtime, traffic, and parade. And, as Deco will explain, that constitutes an artistic vision that changed his life. This is someone else's movie. You know, I, uh, I'm a huge Tati fan and have been forever. Um, when I started out, uh, like I started out in theater and I, I still work in theater when I can and, um, doing many different capacities, but I was doing, like, I was really into Beckett, um, you know, Beckett's my favorite playwright, you know, and the absurdities and, you know, in, uh, Waiting for Godot, there's this little, like, these little vaudeville routines that they do the hat exchange you know and that kind of is like took me into vaudeville theater as a, a kind of starting point early in my career which leads you to clowning who were the greatest vaudeville uh clowns of course that's keaton and chaplin and all those silent film stars fatty arbuckle uh ben turpin you know you kind of go down that rabbit hole. So this is where I started, you know, this is like 20 plus years ago in the silent film clowns. And I just like devoured all of them. And as you keep going, you know, someone like will inevitably mention Tati and you're kind of like, well, like, what is it? What is it? It's like, well, he's kind of like the silent clowns, you know? And, uh, and then you discover Tati and you go, I think I just grew up as a filmmaker. <laughs> Like the moment you see what he is doing, how he's framing his social stories, especially in Monon, you know, like, like, sure, there's comedy in there, but the absolute brilliance of the filmmaking that he's doing and his storytelling um, has always stayed with me. And then, you know, I kind of moved into different directions and was exploring like kind of some more contemporary things, but obviously had moved past just the silent period, you know. And um, I I just had not spent much time with Tati recently, like about 15 years ago in Paris, they had like full Tati retrospective. So I saw Playtime in 70 millimeter, like twice in two different theaters. They had just released a bunch of his shorts that they were showing on film, all the restorations, like, and I just had the opportunity. I saw like his entire retrospective on film in Paris, like, you know, unbelievable, right? So oh, remarkable. God, yeah. 
back when we could do those things. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, and it, it never left me, but it wasn't really front and center. And when it came time not to make my feature film diaspora, but when I was almost finished my feature film diaspora, I started to reacquaint myself with Tati again. And it was like, oh my God, he never left me. <laughs> and my film is full of Tati references, full of Tati framing. The entire movie is shot with like a single wide angle lens, long takes, you know, uninterrupted takes, letting things like play out in different areas of the frame. Uh, so it, it just sort of felt like when you were looking for some titles, you know, I listed a, a kind of a number that really, I don't know, they're almost inspiring on my next things, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, I had put Tati because uh, I'd watched uh, Hulo's Holiday like, I don't know, three weeks ago. I was like, you know, it, it I love it, but it, like he didn't nail it yet, but Mon Oncle, he did. And then, uh, you know, when he gets to playtime, he just becomes that auteur that is just like on another level, right? So it's like a little unapproachable for some people. But Mon Oncle is like, sometimes there's that medium sweet spot and just nailed it. So that was my choice. Just like, I, I feel like uh, he has a permanence in my life. And uh, that old world, new world, which is, you know, featured in um, in my film Diaspora, just is like screaming in Mononc. And, uh, you know, it just kind of felt like something really great to talk about today. Yeah, I had not. I think he was my blind spot for well into my 30s. Mm -hmm. And I have no idea why. I, I just never had the opportunity, I think, to see the films for whatever reason. Um, and there was a, a widescreen Laserdisc release of Playtime, I'm pretty sure, under Criterion's early, early library. And for whatever reason, it, I got everything else from them, but it never showed up. I never mm -hmm. saw it. And then eventually there was a 70 millimeter screening of it somewhere in the city, probably. Oh, you know what? I don't know. I don't think I got to go to it, but I was aware of it. And as a result, I got a DVD of it. So mm. Cinematech must have had a, a disc that I borrowed way back when. So early, early 2000s. And that was my first real experience. And then I realized, oh, that's what the kids in the hall were making fun of with the Mr. Heavyfoot sketches. I mean, I knew right. that. I knew that's where it was from. And I knew that Tati was famous for his compositions and the depth of the joke, like the fact that he would structure things. But it was one of those things that I caught up to as an adult, and I was just so stunned by it mm -hmm. that I couldn't relate. Like, I just, I saw it purely as a mechanical thing. Wow. And really? thought it was cold. Mm -hmm. And then I went back, and and it turned out, I think I had the DVD of Jour de Fête, but I never actually watched it. It showed up from Criterion early on. And so I saw that, and then I sort of worked my way forward, and I realized that the dehumanization is the point of playtime. Oh, yeah. But I just couldn't connect to it as comedy. It just felt like, I mean, it's farce, but it's literally mechanical farce. It's mechanized, it's machine tooled, and it's fascinating as an accomplishment. And I see exactly what you mean about how that's the harder one to connect to. Mm -hmm. um, 
Yulo and Mononcle are films about someone trying to understand the dehumanization around them or being blissfully oblivious to it. And that's where the humanity comes in. Like just the dogs running around in Mononcle give me something to connect to. So good. So and they're like, just peeing on everything. It's it's so marvelous that he keeps that in. That you know, like it's it's just a little messy and dirty in a way yeah. that says that life is going on everywhere, and that all of this sort of sterility of the suburb and the the this this house that isn't really made for people. That's directly in contrast to the world that Yulo comes from, which is just people getting splashed in puddles and in comic ways, and all just sort of getting along and going along with. The, the general mess of humanity. And it's only when you try to remove yourself from it that everything goes wrong. And, you know, to compliment what you're saying, like they're not comedies at all. And that's why they're absolutely brilliant. There's like, there's, I mean, okay, there's a few jokes because, you know, he, he likes jokes, but that's not the point. Like he's not there to entertain you, uh, you know, as a comedian would, right? He's actually a remarkable, uh, deep filmmaker, technically, um, but thematically, you know, we just don't really get the opportunity to engage with movies that have that kind of level. And, and at the same time, are just like backing away from it. Like, here's the story. I'm not I'm not going to I'm like, I'm not going to interrupt anything. I'm just going to like let it play in my style and uh yeah that's the movie you yeah, know you take and, away whatever you take away and how you know definitely like the original minimalist filmmaker right like on uh, just unbelievable what he can do with uh you know with the camera with the scene with performances with repetition and coming back to a joke later you know really interesting stories like uh a long time ago i was invited to Paris on the final short list for the Cannes residency to, to hole up in Paris for like six months and work on a script. And, uh, and I had uh, gone and gone through all these sets of interviews. And in one of the interviews, you know, one of their pat questions was uh, who's your favorite French filmmaker. And I said, Jacques Tati. And they laughed at me in that moment you know and i was like i was so genuine and earnest uh i actually think like i didn't end up getting the resonance i actually think like that was a, like <laughs> that part tanked of it, it right you know like you're supposed to say for a song or something or you know and uh or name every contemporary hot french you know uh filmmaker but like i stand by my you know my pledge um and and i think it's kind of obvious you know when when um, you kind of see the structure of of diaspora, uh, you you can kind of see some similarities, and you go like, "Wow, he's just letting things happen. He's letting it play out, and like is not concerned about the standard editing practices of you know uh, cinematic flow, you know, um, but in fact." working on a totally different, you know, like a Tarkovsky's the best for, you know, talking about cinema and the way that cinema can use time in ways, poetic ways that we can't in any other uh, art form or real life, but cinema can do it, you know, and, and that was a heavy influence on 
the elasticity of time that that I used in that movie. Well, Tati had been doing that as well, you know, and we kind of don't even notice those things when it's it's a comedian, right? Yeah. But he's the ultimate filmmaker by like releasing a movie, one movie per decade. 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. And I can't remember if the last like hybridized version of whatever came out actually came out in the 80s or like it was like there's one parade, I think. Yeah, I think traffic and parade traffic, I think, was 70s and parade. I don't know if it ended up coming out. I have the I have the box set right here and I'm just going to look because I can do that and it's not cheating at all. Uh, Playtime 67, traffic 71, parade. 74 74 okay yeah so 40s 50s 60s and 70s oh what a nice collection yeah the criterion set is magnificent Um, i i was saying yesterday you know there's very few filmmakers that i would buy their filmography on vhs and then i would rebuy it on dvd and then i would rebuy it in a you know hd 4k whatever and teti is one of them like they weren't available in north america so i bought all french vhs versions oh yeah the color i remember i came across a colorized version of jeu de fête and i was like the holy grail i have only read about this you know <laughs> um and then i ended up buying all like region 2 dvds of it like really bad transfers and then criterion finally came out with some some good ones yeah, they're all on the channel now with the with the extras and everything, which is just splendid. And the the availability is a huge difference too than when I first came to them. Uh, yeah, because it was like finding it was finding out that I had one all along, which was kind of insulting. But also just realizing that this this is the sort of thing that would have been treated as an oddity uh theatrically i mean i have no idea if they if they even played in toronto theatrically the first time around i'm assuming once mon uncle won the academy award it probably got a boost on north america but the the taste and the specifics of the films is so alien to what comedy would have been perceived as at the time right i mean 1958 was caper pictures and mm-hmm. and romantic comedies and and maybe early cinemas like pillow talk was was on the horizon um yeah. but that was that was what it, uh, north american audiences were getting and here is this sophisticated ballet of cause and effect and happenstance and this subtle understanding that just having a good heart will be enough to carry you through whatever's happening to the human race. It feels now, it feels so optimistic. Playtime feels pessimistic, but Mononcle is a happily ever after picture. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. It's it's so strange to re-encounter it. I mean, I, I don't think I'd seen it since the Blu-ray, so at least 10 years until I revisited it again last night. And it's so much brighter than I remember. It's so much more hopeful. There's also a lot more dialogue than I recall. Yeah, I I do too. Like um I've watched them all without titles um because when you're watching them in in France famously more... protective about their subtitle options, yeah. <laughs> It'd be like we're going to subtitle French, you know. Um and, and it's fine. I mean, they hold up and um to like last night again, yeah, watching it again myself, it was like, "Oh, right. Oh, and I thought it was very interesting what was chosen to be subtitled and what wasn't like, there's so much dialogue and it was, uh, you know, again, just 
those were the same choices that I made too, you know, like you don't need to subtitle everything if you already know what's happening. And if it, um, how to use dialogue and off-screen dialogue, or actually even in his case, on-screen dialogue, that is more about soundtrack mm. than it is about deciphering what's being said, you know? And I don't know if we do that enough. We put like murmur, murmur, murmur in the background having actual things that you like here that's what life is really like you know that's what a, a garden party is really like and you're never paying attention to any one story and and of course in uh, playtime when he does go to 70 millimeter and frames multiple scenes in the different like simultaneously yeah and your eyes want he's doing the same thing with with dialogue in in these movies right um but his choice to to subtitle some and not others and he kind of went like yeah i probably didn't need to know that that's exactly what was being said at that moment uh, but it's great yeah my french was just good enough to keep up with arguments about pricing in yeah. a grocer's, I think, yeah. or, or somebody with a flower seller is saying, we don't have that yet, but it's coming or something like that. And it's, it's true. It's not necessary. Um, I mean, in, in diaspora, you chose to subtitle one language of the what 25 that are being spoken. And yeah. it's, it's a great way to immediately place us in the headspace of the character that we understand, uh, as opposed to having scene after scene after scene of other people being intelligible to us. Mm -hmm. But I, I love the fact that the characters in your film aren't speaking gibberish. They're actually speaking their own languages. And so any viewer who speaks more than one language will find something else as an anchor. Mm -hmm. um, and it sort of subtly shifts perspectives here and there. Like my French is good enough that I could follow it when it's happening. And so Spanish and German, like all the Latin languages kind of line up together, but there's so much happening in diaspora that is beyond the comprehension of the protagonist, mm -hmm. not just in terms of dialogue. And we, I promise we'll get back to Tati, but you are trusting us to be able to follow her um, and decipher whatever metaphors she may be encountering or whatever concrete things she might be encountering and understand how they all fit together. And uh, the, the, the person on her couch feels like a deliberate comment on the history of Canada, as opposed to Ukraine, it feels like you know, her immediate response is that he doesn't belong there, but he was there first, quite literally. And yeah. so that's there floating for anybody who understands the history of Canada. But if you're not here and seeing it somewhere else, it's a completely different interpretation, right? Like everything is dependent on the viewer catching what they catch in the same way that Tati will have five things happening in any given frame. And it's up to us to follow the things that we follow. Absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, you, you couldn't have put it better because uh, if you happen to speak one of the other languages featured in, in diaspora, that brief moment opens up to you, mm -hmm. right? But then immediately it's gone and you're right back to where she is, you know? So she might be able to communicate with the Polish lady just like kind of off and on or really work on understanding Croatian, right? But again, as soon as she can't, you can just see it on her face. Like, just, I know, I, you know, I was there, I was there, and it's gone. And to have other audience members experience that with their own languages, but no one is going to know 25. Yeah. They're so disparate, right? So you're never. And uh, the movie was written and directed to actually have no titles 
whatsoever. It actually works without any. Uh, so that's a very bold move. Uh, and so it's, when you get to it, you go like, wow, there's a lot of boldness happening here. How, like, how, how do we temper which uh, in order to, you know, keep people with her? And, and I mm-hmm. felt personally, you know, I, I made the suggestion to be like, I think I want a title just her. And I, I understand everything she's saying in Ukrainian. And I'm like, it actually gives a lot to her spicy personality, right? And it shows how far she falls. Um, but it's, it's, you know, it's fun to play with, with language. And I like that Tati's doing it all in, in French. Uh, but he doesn't really care if you understand it or not, you know? Like, it would have been fun to see Tati go into many different languages. He would have just had a, a ball. And, like, maybe this diaspora is, like, an extension of a Tati, you know, idea or something, right? Yeah, I could certainly see him wanting to do that. But maybe France at the time just wasn't interested in financing anything that wasn't very, very French. It wasn't immediately marketable as very, very French. Right. Um, and he is like he, th- his position in cinema. I'm still I'm fixating on what you said about the Cannes program because like how of course he's an auteur. He was he's one of the first auteurs. He's so mm-hmm. clearly doing the same thing in every movie with different results and different ambitions. But his method never changes. Mm-hmm. It just gets more expansive because he has access to more money and better technology. Like as as through the decades, you can see him refining the thing that he does, but his focus never wavers. He had such a clear vision of what he was doing in any given moment right the writer director and performer in these movies we know how difficult that is to begin with right um but the vision like you say never altered you know he could have just like he must have just experienced life in that way he steps back he sees like a scene unfolding just stands there watches it and is like i know exactly how this could be funny or i know exactly what i would do next to turn this into a vignette right and that's probably like an important you know segue there too is the use of vignettes as a storytelling method Mm -hmm. opposed to a, a concise um linear narrative right uh and i think that's kind of you know, in playtime, that's p- part of part of the not the difficulty with the movie, but it plays with that convention of 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 typical um, you know linear narrative. And he's kind of got pockets that he never returns back to again. But then others like come in this cyclical way. Like you could write just giant essays on how Tati was so different than every other filmmaker, and yet is not he's not taken seriously at the same level as, as like Godard, you know, he's doing something just as crazy at any given moment. Hey, it's Norm interrupting my own show to tell you about the latest shiny things newsletter, my weekly dispatch about physical media, culture, and maybe even the odd streaming thing. Last week, I reviewed the theatrical features Bros and Smile, the latest volume of Martin Scorsese's World Cinema Project from the Criterion Collection, and Arrow Films' new editions of A Fugitive from the Past and Johnny Toe's Running Out of Time films. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at shiny-things.ghost.io or find the link at the Semcast Twitter account. 
Did you miss me writing about movies? I did. Come check it out. Yeah, it's his use of formalism, I think, that disqualifies it. Everything is so premeditated that it can't have the energy of a, you know, Nouvelle Vague or, or somebody somebody actually reconstructing the way you see films. He's doing radical things, mm-hmm. but he's doing them very deliberately and calmly. It's he, I keep thinking of Kubrick. I keep thinking mm-hmm. of someone who was, you know, obsessive about his cinema to the point where he towards the end, extinguish the humanity from it. I mean, that was sort of his point, but it was also a byproduct, a side effect of the way he told the stories where it's so deliberate and airless that you feel your own empathy dulling. That Mm. doesn't happen in, in Tati because he is, all of his structures are designed to support the, the life within. Right? Like there is so much going on. There is so much life that can't be controlled and that it's bustling around. And it's, uh, yeah, I, I come back to the optimism again of, of somebody who um, takes responsibility in that, in that little gag where uh, the, the, I think he's a baker or a butcher gets soaked by a truck. And then Yulo comes around the corner and just finishes the job, gets his last little cuffs wet, the bit that missed, the bit that was missed. And there's a hose in the, in the puddle that creates the spray and it's all incredibly perfectly orchestrated. But then Yulo is apologetic and sorry and trying to make it better, which the guy immediately takes as an advantage to try to get some money out of him for the dry cleaning. But he's, he means well. And, he's the hero. Like the movie's sympathies are completely on his side. Yeah. Um, he can be a destructive force, but he's not malevolent or impish. He is a figure of sort of gentle fun. And maybe he is, you know, the old guard, the old generation of French people who are not interested in modernizing and who after the war are still, taking it slow and dealing with some stuff, you know, there's there, his silence offers layers because we can just read whatever we want into it, mm-hmm. but he's good natured and he bonds with his nephew and he's not a bad person and the world isn't made for him anymore. And right. that still somehow doesn't turn into a tragedy, right? Like he is allowed to maintain that level of dignity throughout. And I'm seeing that in all sorts of other movies that are far less orchestrated and constructed and consciously presenting themselves as a single piece mm-hmm. uh, around the same time. And, you know, you've got the neorealism revolution in, in Italy and you've got whatever's going on in, in, um, in this sort of breathless is being conceived right around the same time. Mm-hmm. And it will be in conflict with the way that Tati is making movies. And there, there's going to be a schism um, between the new guard and the old guard. And, and, if you look forward 20 years, he's, Tati is unchanged by it. Mm-hmm, he's still mm-hmm. just making this sort of movie. And that was Kubrick too. Like he couldn't not make Eyes Wide Shut the same way he'd made The Shining 20 years earlier. They're, they're, they're so clearly from the same guy. But because Tati is working in comedy or something that's lighter anyway, because it's not about the end of the world or the, the dehumanization. I mean, it sort of is, but it isn't. Um, because he can make you smile and leave you feeling happy, somehow he just doesn't, merit that level of attention but look what he's doing it's like my uncle's absolutely profound it like you know my my opinion is when you make movies based on timeless themes they will never age 
doesn't matter how different the world has changed, timeless themes never change. And it's exactly what Monolk is, right? The new guard versus the old guard, you know, and the the interpretation of what home is and what evolution is. I mean, those are massive. Those themes have been around, you know, since the dawn of humanity, right? And uh, it's all there in this light comedy. Uh, and and he does not lie. Like everything, there's nothing is a lie. It's all true. And he's got the broken down brick wall. It's been kind of jackhammered away or just kind of fallen into disrepair to reveal, you know, the new Paris on the other side. You know, it's a little on the nose metaphor, but you go like, no, that's exact. Like, it's only on the nose if you don't get it. Yeah. You know, if, if you're just like, it's the perfect metaphor. Uh, and no, he, he's consistent throughout the whole, the whole, every time you go into the town of the townspeople and you got the street sweeper and they just all can get like rallied into the bar. Because, and he's like, yeah, that's life. You know, like that depiction of like, which would you rather? The thing that seems to have no importance whatsoever or the thing that has so much importance, it's absurd and therefore has no importance whatsoever, you know? And it's like, we just don't push ourselves to do that, you know, in cinema. And and he was. Yeah. And it's true. There are, his metaphors can be a little bit on the nose, but I think that's the, the beauty of near silent, right? You can allow yourself obvious imagery because it isn't pulling, like di the dialogue isn't there to, to underline it. It's the, like that fish statue is just there and it's hideous. Um, and all it does is vomit water for no purpose and you save it for the best occasions. You save it to impress people. And that just tells you absolutely everything about these people's values. And it makes, it makes you feel like an interloper. There's that wonderful shot of him trying to hop a hedge just to get some orangeade at a garden party that goes on and on and on. And it's just, it's such a tiny little quest that Tati sets for himself. And as an actor, he embodies it and he makes it interesting, just shuffling back and forth with like playing his weight on one foot or the other and moving around with the overcoat. There's, there's so much anxiety and anticipation and hesitation in such a simple thing. You can only do that if you don't have dialogue. You can only mm -hmm. do that if you're playing it as physical. Mm -hmm. And so it just becomes part of a a metaphor without even trying, right? Like you're just watching this man try to get a drink at a party, but he doesn't belong there and he knows it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so then eventually the film takes his side because of course we're on board with the underdog. We have to be up for, for these people aren't worth supporting. You have to like the little guy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And he just does it. So I want to say subtly, obviously it's not subtle, but you can ignore all of that as a like as a child just watching it and just just get the funny man yeah just to be so endeared like as a child you would watch and go like no I, that's the only guy i like in this whole thing <laughs> right i like everything he does and you're like oh you like the uncle you like the uncle like oh so does the kid you know yeah like like no my favorite moment maybe uh is when the mother turns on the vacuum cleaner the self-vacuuming vacuum cleaner and walks. So for an hour and a half, you only see the mother, you only hear the mother when she's vacuuming inside. 
And then in the last reveal, she's not even attending to the vacuum cleaner. And the child has a Pavlovian response to the vacuum cleaner being on as being motherly and runs to her. And it's the vacuum and the mother's not there. You know, it's like, I know Teti wrote that as a joke, but my God, where we are in 2022, <laughs> is that ever like, you know, switch vacuum cleaner with television babysitter or something, you know, like, yeah. Oh God, they're only going to get better, you know? And that's, you know, a true auteur, a true genius. His, his films will remain forever. And, the level of appreciation will only grow over time. And, you know, maybe that's why I chose it. It was just like the right movie at the right time, right? Yeah, it's, um, it's, I mean, and, and of course now with restorations and criterion and then the fact that there is a brand behind Tati, there's a good mm -hmm. glorious box set with all kinds of magical wonderment in it. Um, that, that anyone can just pick up and all of his films are on the Criterion channel with all the supplements. It's just the kind of thing where y you could conceivably be eight years old and just have it and, and notice it if, you're, if your uncle is watching it or your parents have it on or something. And it will, like it, it will be like it's been there and fully accessible the whole time. I just think this is going mm. to turn into kids today don't know how good they have it but i mm. swear to god if this stuff had existed in my youth i would never have i would never have done anything with my life i would just be watching the i'd still be watching the criterion channel now catching up yeah yeah and the idea that it was something that had, had evaded me and and that i had to discover as an adult is just is marvelous and every now and then there are these arguments that come up on twitter about how what do you mean you've never seen this there's nothing wrong with coming to something late Mm -hmm. uh, and I have, unfortunately, the path of my career has meant that I've been covering all the restorations as they happen. So I've always, like, I spent most of the 80s and 90s discovering the films that I would be discovering now, just mm. because they were being released on VHS or Laserdisc or DVD and, and being remastered and represented. I was the one writing about them. Right. But I, as a result, there's almost nothing left for me to discover. And it's kind of a little sad. I'm sure that's not true. Like the, the Martin Scorsese collections keep coming out with all these classics of world cinema from the 20s and 30s and 40s that I've never even heard of. Mm -hmm. But, you know, discovering this stuff now, it's true. I don't relate to, to Tati as I would have as a child, but I think I would have been bored as a child. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And now I'm not because I can appreciate what he's saying as well as the funny falling down man, which honestly doesn't happen as often as people seem to think. I mean, the, the word slapstick gets thrown around a lot. That's not really what he does. Not um, at all. Even the, the corresponding hose joke of the, the thing that, that chases Ulo in the, uh, in the factory yeah. at the very end, which is really just, um, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a pipe on a string ultimately, but it has personality. It's not just an accident waiting to happen. Something is going on in that scene. Uh, the, the interaction between a man and, a, and an inanimate object that has decided to pester him. And that's whimsy, right? Like it's not slapstick. Slapstick is somebody getting hit and falling down or tripping and being made a fool of. That's never what he's doing as a filmmaker. As an actor, he has his dignity, right? He maintains his dignity uh, as Hulo almost obliviously. But watching that scene play out again was just like, there's... 
like this is commentary, this is metaphor, this is symbolic, and it's also just charming as hell. Mm-hmm. Because whatever's happening at that point in the film, it's, it's almost like, I think it's maybe 10 minutes before the ending. It's not going to kill him. It's not going to hurt him. We've, we've established the world of this film where things are going to just occur and he will be fine. So I want to know what it does. And that shot goes on long enough that it gives me the time to think about why this is happening and what's going on and how weirdly sweet it is. It's such a strange, um, strange way to uh, write a movie where you go, well, this perfectly epitomizes the theme that I am, you know, discussing here. Yeah. So, like, I'll make this really, uh, really cute. Yeah. You know, and and you're just like man versus machine, inanimate object as a predator, you know, and uh, infantile man. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. don't really know he does he's never just like yeah for what you know shoves it he has to interact with it like yeah, a, yeah yeah you know like a character has to you know um but it all comes down to the the premise of the gag is so deep it like it's just like let's make the theme that's being discussed here taken to one more level and another metaphor and uh yeah let's have some fun with it like you know what i mean like even that discussion of like nothing has to be so heavy you can't you know process it in the in the given moment and uh, yet that absurdity is just like beautiful so you know i'm a true absurdist i've been a an uh you know a fan of theater of the absurd and um minimalist films minimalism uh for so long there's something about it and to T epitomizes that, that just really speaks to me. And I don't know, like not having to explain everything, just letting things play out. I just really feel like we just don't, don't take the time or ever permit ourselves to allow things to happen in front of the camera. We yeah. got to move on. What's the plot? What's next? When are we getting back to the boy? You know, what's the, 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 and uh, it kind of drives me crazy because life isn't like that. How did we get convinced, you know, that we have to prescribe to this way of storytelling? Uh, and then you have something like Tati comes along and you kind of go, yeah, like, geez, it's all right there. He knows what he's doing. Like, why can't we appreciate that uh, to the nth degree and, and then make room for conventional stuff, you know? Yeah, I mean, I noticed that um, the American or sorry, the English language version is 10 minutes shorter and has different signage here and there. And some of the dialogue is in English. Um, And he trimmed it apparently because it was uh, the French version was seen as too slow. Hmm. But it's deliberate. There's a difference. Like it's 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 okay for a comedy to be two hours long. Well, maybe now too, like post Apatow where everything is two hours and 20 because, you know, shooting on digital means you can make a movie as long as you want and it doesn't cost any more in footage or prints or anything like that. It's all just a hard drive. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result, films have gotten longer and attention spans have stretched, but we can always feel when something is lagging or flabby. And mm-hmm. this is not that. It's It's deliberate and structured. And if you just, click into the pace, it rewards you. Mm -hmm. It's so 
beguiling to slip into this mode of of watching a movie take its time and know that it's going somewhere. I mean, mm-hmm. again, I'd seen it before. I knew that it would work and it, I'm not anxious about having my time wasted, but it is so pleasurable to just let it roll over you. And and Diaspora, which, you know, it's not a pleasurable experience necessarily as, as cinema, but at two hours and 20, you're, you are investing your confidence in the audience being able to, to handle that without language necessarily to moor us in a scene. And that pacing works and the flow is, is similarly confident. I never felt like I was wasting a minute. It mm-hmm. shows me what it needs to show me. Um, I mean, you cut a little bit faster than Tati, but I think that's simply a means of getting all the material in. Well, the, um, you know, the actual cut of, of Diaspora is like 239. Okay. Um, the full realized movie is that, um, but it just felt like, I, we just don't live in that world, you know, right now. And, um, and the pay it, you know, and it's not like there's a whole bunch of content it's actually like no content, but it's that kind of pacing you're talking about. I actually would deliberately like it a little bit, a little bit slower to like put some handles on the edges, you know, mm-hmm. um, but instead just kind of kept, kept the efficiency of, you know, respectability for people's patience, you know, in there. And it, it's like a trade-off. I mean, you, you what are you going to do? You're going to make something that is, uh, is perfect, but definitely not many people's cup of tea or will you make something that like n- nails exactly what you set out to do does it has a, a boldness and assuredness about it and you're like you know you're not being overly indulgent with things right um so i like that you like uh cuts a little bit faster because it's like oh no maybe i cut too fast <laughs> <laughs> honestly i thought you were going to tell me the original cut was like three hours and 45 minutes um two two forty is not bad for a film that ultimately ends up as 220 yeah no, it's like absurd <laughs> is there anything from uh tati that you deliberately homaged or lifted or i mean you had said that you looked back and saw it but was there anything at any point where you thought oh this is sort of like playtime or or you love uh yeah for sure i mean um probably some of the formalism um you know it's heavily influenced in terms of the the shooting style by Ulrich Seidel an Austrian you know oh, yeah. tour I love Seidel that was another when I saw Seidel that changed my life right it really uh it really opened up I like the new wave stuff I like um shooting on the streets I love Cassavetes when you're like oh geez that camera's just on the street you know I really love that stuff. And with the proliferation of video cameras, it's it's lost the boldness that it takes to to take. Like you got a film crew with like a 35 mil mag or 16, even in Cassavetti's case, and you got a guy with a, a boom pole, like you're calling attention to yourself on the street. Yeah. You better be dedicated to to get those shots, right? Um and inside I really saw someone who could like they did not care. You know, he's walk walking through the mall dog days, like with the camera, and like people are burning the lens left, like and you're like, oh man, he's just walked through there with the camera rolling, you know, following the character. Um, but I really loved his like framing, this locked off framing, and that's definitely a tattoo type of thing where 
just back off. And so I, I do have scenes, for example, when she's looking for the vacuum cleaner and, and goes into the like electric lamp store. We just never go inside with her. We just stay out. We hear a little bit of the dialogue that happens inside. They come out. That's a very tatty kind of moment, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, having uh, like um, she comes into the, uh, the lunchroom and crosses the lunchroom and realizes all these voices are going in all these different languages. And she's not a part of this at all. It's a very tatty like mo moment to just cross the frame, distract yourself with the vending machine and then just leave again, like in one locked off shot and like you get it right. Um, that kind of thing that feels like a little bit of playtime. There's like the restaurant scene in playtime, which uh, which has a lot of commotion happening in different places. Um, there's a, a moment where uh, Eva and Chona are, are sitting in this back alley smoking in like complete unison. That was a charismatic kind of moment. Uh, it just kind of felt felt right and absurd. Um, but I could see, but it's like staring down the barrel of the lens is not something that Tati ever did. Um, but that's a very subtle kind of thing. Um, but, you know, the three of those all have this a similar, you know, Kairos uh, He just, he backs off too at times, yeah, just leaves yeah. that that shot there. Deep focus filmmakers. I mean, that's really, really, everyone loves this like 50 to 75 mil lens where the background's completely out of focus and, they're so tight on the, you know, when the actor moves out of the frame, they're quickly like reframing. Uh, yeah, total opposite for me. Put everything in focus and and having the city of Winnipeg as a character, you, you gotta show it, you know. My, my biggest complaint is like, uh, you know, location scouts will find like the incredible building. Oh, yeah. you want this location? We got it. Look at the, you know, the DOP shows up, the director shows up, everyone says, this is, that's exact, oh, it's gorgeous, we love it. And then they put on, like, a 50 mil lens, and, like, you see just the door as they walk in, you know, and you go, why did you choose that building? And you never showed it. It could have been any building, right? Uh, that You know, that's kind of a complaint, so I'm like, you know, every building head to toe with room around it, you know, make it a real, make the city a real character. Yeah. Uh, which of course he does in uh, in in uh, playtime. I mean, cities as characters. That's a and in Mononk, of course, and in like Hulo's Holiday. Even the town, each of those settings are such definitive characters uh, to his. You know, the landscape with which this character can play. Yeah, no, he's he's absolutely a tableau filmmaker. So are so are Karismaki and Seidel, and even if Seidel does favor you know, like sort of confining people in their tableaus that way until mm -hmm. you can't breathe with them. But yeah. And I noticed that in diaspora, there's more air, there's more space around people than maybe uh, I would have expected, but it, it really works to place them in the environment. It feels like everyone is in the center of a story, even if it's not the story that we're watching, it's going to just there will be something else for that person to do, to go and do like there, there's just a sense of life moving in and out, which is not necessarily something I would say about Tati because he's so mm -hmm. specific about what he's showing us. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's an interesting deviation. It's an expansive tableau instead of a, a locked off one. I told, uh, you know, my DOP, we had, uh, 
had only had three rules. Uh, number one, you either have to, sh it's either going to be locked off and framed, you know, meticulously, mm -hmm. or it's going to be handheld, but there's like no dolly, no sticks, like no, uh, sliders, no steady cam, nothing like that. It's either like the raw handheld or perfectly framed and, uh, you can't light anything. <laughs> All the lighting has to be existing lighting. Right. Uh, but because the locations were so, so integral to the story, we didn't have to set dress anywhere. So then don't light it. Like, don't change, like, don't change it. Like just when you walk into that room, so so many of those places, if you were to walk in today, they would look exactly the same. But part of the you know purpose of the movie was to film a city that's disappearing. Hmm. And a good 30% of those locations are now gone since filming it. Right. And so, you know what? Show the whole thing. Give people the whole package because they're never going to see it again. Uh, and, you know, that was kind of part of it. So setting up really some formal, formal rules, um, you know, which Teti was, of course, like, like uh, a perfectionist at, right? Just, you know, like I said, discovering Teti never left me. And it's, in this movie where I realized how prevalent his like inspiration is it just in terms of understanding what to do with the camera and diaspora is not a silent movie in any way, but it's a non dialogue driven movie. Mm -hmm. And I'm more interested in the intimacies of the performance that can be extremely subtle at any moment and some of Teti's best moments are those subtle ones where you, you don't even see it coming. And it's the little thing that means nothing that means so much. Like the street sweeper that never finishes his pile. <laughs> like it's a joke, but it's like, it's, it's not a funny one. It's so real. That's old world Paris. What a great metaphor. My thanks to Deco Dawson, whose excellent first feature, Diaspora, makes its world premiere this Saturday, October 8th, at 7.30 p.m. in Montreal's Festival du Nouveau Cinema, repeating Monday, October 10th at 1 p.m. You can find more information and buy tickets at nouveaucinema.ca. Thanks also to Winnie Wong. She knows what she did. You can find Deco on Twitter at Deco Dawson, all one word, and you can find Mon Oncle in that excellent Jacques Tati box set I was talking about in the Criterion Collection. It's also available to stream on the Criterion channel along with all of the other Tati titles they've released. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the podcast is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com slash Semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 45 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll like it. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you're enjoying it, or this show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. Get your booster when you can. I got mine yesterday. See you next week. <laughs>